I really love movies. Romantic comedies, 1950s musicals, whatever. I love the neat little packages they come in, the way they tidily wrap up life in just under two hours. And of course, the best kind of movie for tidily wrapping up life is science fiction. Forget the aliens, the monsters, the giant blue people with pulsating hair that plug into their horses. Avatar, no? Okay. The best thing about science fiction, and perhaps the strangest, is the way it presents the good as so good and the bad as so bad. I was thinking about this the other day when I flipped to the last Lord of the Rings movie on TV. I loved the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I thought every role was perfectly cast, the special effects were fantastic, and the elves were so beautiful. Actually, conveniently, all the good characters were beautiful. They might be hobbity beautiful, small and compact with curly hair, or elfin beautiful, tall with long straight hair and an unearthly glow, or even king and his people beautiful, goatee, shoulder-length wavy hair, rugged charm. But none of them look like those awful orcs, all disfigured faces and giant claw-like nails. Or like Gollum, the hobbit gone bad, who is also a hobbit gone not as cute. And of course, nothing can beat Sauron, who is essentially the source of all evil and who is seen mostly as a huge orange eye glaring out from the devastated mountain where the deadly fires burn. Wouldn't it be convenient if life were like the movies? It would be so helpful if all the good people glowed like elves, while the bad people had long, scary claws. For that matter, it would be helpful if there were only good people and only bad people. It would make the fight for justice so much easier if we just knew once and for all who was on which side. I started thinking about this topic and as you'll see over the next 20 minutes or so, there's actually a few topics in this platform. I started thinking about it when I first saw this t-shirt. I'm going to come out to make sure that you've seen it. It was being worn at the time, not this actual t-shirt, I believe, but one very similar, by Louis Bider, one of our Sunday school children. And as he came up the walk, I called out to him, great shirt. Because it was! Yoda, a lightsaber, and the word justice? I mean, how much better does clothing get, really? Well, the next week, Lewis presented me with my very own Yoda Justice t-shirt. And since then, I have been trying to figure out the perfect platform to go with it. I don't usually design my talks around clothing, but this shirt deserved it. Star Wars, of course, is almost as clear as the Lord of the Rings when it comes to good and bad. The Sith Lords never look that great. I think the evil kind of sucks the pretty out of them. Whereas who could see the beautiful Princess Leia and not know right away that she's on the right side? Yoda, while not exactly beautiful, is so darn cute that he must be good as well. So you just want to cheer him on when you see him with his giant lightsaber ready to strike out evil in a single blow. I told you that there were a couple of topics in this platform, and rather than meander around for a while, I'm going to just tell you what they are. Tell you what, for me, this t-shirt has me thinking about. First, what if life really were like the movies? 
Can we look around and see clearly which side to stand on? Is the line between right and wrong always solid, or is it, on occasion, a dotted line that we swerve around? And second, should we be using lightsabers to fight our justice battles? Are they battles at all? And why do we call them battles if the thing we're trying to reach is peace? Let's take second things first, because frankly, that one's easier. My guess is that most of us, whatever our fondness for Yoda, don't really think that lightsabers are the best way to achieve justice in the world. Much of the world really feels that violence and war are a last resort, although we do get into disagreements about when we've reached the point of last resort, and I don't mean to minimize those. But really, I think there are relatively few people who think violence is a grand old way to get what is right. Why then does so much of our language make justice work seem like a pitched battle? And does it matter? I think it does, up to a point. There are extreme examples of violent language in justice work, often found when that justice work is, in fact, related to war. I always think of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, written by the Unitarian Julia Ward Howe and popular during the Civil War. You really can imagine soldiers singing this as they marched along, literally fighting for what they believed. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are so stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Ward Howe was writing in a tradition of violent religious imagery that goes all the way back to the Hebrew Bible. The, the Psalms, many of which are love songs and laments, also include particularly fervent pleas for God to dash one's enemies' heads against a rock. One way to look at this, I think, is that it's a violent world, and sometimes we feel the need to speak in anger and even with violence to see change. And sometimes not. Julia Ward Howe was also the creator of Mother's Day, which she founded as a day of peace because too many mother's sons had been killed through war. But it's not just wartime justice that seems to draw out our violent rhetoric. We are always fighting for our causes, doing battle for what's right, taking down the opposition. I was amazed to read last week what Martin Luther King Jr. said about his justice work. In a Washington Post op-ed, his son, Martin Luther King III, wrote, quote, My father called nonviolence a sword for all those who struggle for justice, but he deemed it, and here he's quoting his father, a sword that heals rather than a sword that wounds, end quote. As I think about the civil rights movement that King led, it is certainly true that nonviolence was hardly non-confrontation. The people may not have been singing the battle hymn of the Republic, but they were surely singing and marching, and I would say fighting, for what was right. This brings me, I think, to the first question I laid out. That is how we see clearly which side is right and which is wrong, and whether that whole idea of right and wrong even works all of the time. The civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, to me, looking back and learning about it, certainly seems like one with a right side and a wrong side. We can understand King's sword of nonviolence because he and all who fought for civil rights had plenty to be angry about. 
Indeed, Malcolm X and other leaders felt that King's anger didn't go far enough, particularly in its sadness for and possibility of forgiveness for those whites who were caught in or who actively perpetuated the system of racism. And there are those justice issues today that I feel the same way about. I know, I know just where I stand on marriage equality, and what's more, I know, I'm sure, that my side is the right one. I can understand some of the fear that is behind the other position. I have empathy for what must be a frightening experience of a changing world. But that empathy doesn't mean that I think for an instant that those who work against civil rights for the LGBT and queer community aren't wrong. I do think they're wrong. And I'll fight for what is right. See, that fight language comes right back in, particularly when we're standing on what we feel sure is solid justice ground. But what about the times when we aren't so sure of our footing, or at least our message? Could it be that violent justice language is getting in the way of solving some of our stickier justice issues? For me, abortion rights are in this category. I am absolutely pro-choice. I've marched for choice. I was enraged by the recent cuts to Planned Parenthood's funding, and I'm proud of my mother's volunteer work as an escort at her local clinic. But as strongly as I believe in a woman's right to choose, I find the whole issue much grayer than marriage equality. Not only do I have empathy for how the other side feels, I can actually understand some of the arguments. Some of the arguments for my side don't work for me. And above all, it seems to me that one reason we aren't getting to common ground as a country on this issue is that it's a place where the fight, fight, fight language really isn't working. Instead, I wish we could come to the table for more conversation, that we could find a way to honor what the other side is saying, to hear it more fully, and see if there's anything, any value we share in common. I don't expect that either side will be converted, but I wonder if there aren't a lot of us who, although knowing which side we stand on, aren't finding that the line is dotted enough to allow for conversation. I know there are some in this congregation who hope that we can be a place to allow conversation, a place where people of divergent viewpoints on any number of issues can come together and look for a middle way. Just as there are some in this congregation who hope that we can be a place that really does fight for justice, that stands with banners high on the side of right. My hope is that we can be both at different times and in different ways. Which brings me actually to a third part of this platform, the part I didn't plan to talk about when I wrote up my title and little blurb more than a month ago. In the time since then, though, our country has seen the birth of a protest, an encampment, dare I say, a movement. I'm still not exactly sure what's going on in Zuccotti Park or on Freedom Plaza or at McPherson Square, but it doesn't seem to be going away. I am sure about some things. I'm sure about why the protests started, about what is making folks so mad, or at least I'm sure about what is making me so mad. I spoke last spring about America's truly shameful income inequality, and it sure hasn't gotten better since then. 
There are all kinds of articles to read about that. Last spring, I based my talk mostly on a wonderful series in Slate. But the best one I've seen recently is 41 slides, graphs and statistics mostly, along with an apt picture of the fictional Wall Street villain Gordon Gecko and his cigar, with clearly explained captions detailing what the inequality looks like, and particularly highlighting the difference between money earned by the financial sector and money earned through wages over time. As a recent New York Times editorial put it, at this point, protest is the message. Income inequality is grinding down that middle class, increasing the ranks of the poor, and threatening to create a permanent underclass of able, willing, but jobless people." End quote. Or in the words of Al Gore, the protest movement is America's primal scream of democracy. But eventually, we have to stop screaming and figure out what comes next. The protest cannot be the message forever, and so many of us have been waiting to see what message begins to emerge. I have loved reading about how the protest encampments have worked on creating that message, both the theory behind it, democratic conversations called general assemblies where everyone has a voice, but also the ingenious logistics Amplifiers, like megaphones, are prohibited at Zuccotti Park, so the protesters repeat back in short phrases what a speaker is saying so that everyone can hear the words rippling like waves over the crowd. There is something exciting about all of this creation, about the messiness and the ideas and the possibility that something new will happen. What I wonder, of course, what many of us wonder, is what exactly new will happen. Will there be demands? A single distilled message? Can the primal scream be parsed out to mean something real come election time or, miracle of miracles, even before election time, even after? Can all of this energy create true change in the system? I think this is not a time for Yoda and his lightsaber. The protesters are angry and they have every right to be. The financial sector and that top 1% more generally have too much money and are getting more while the rest of us are getting less. Some of us, the working class and the young in particular, are getting much, much less, and anger may be an appropriate reaction. But the financial sector is not actually peopled by Sith Lords. It's peopled by people. And this seems to be one of those times when conversation is needed minus the fight language. There are a few ways to do that, I think. And not surprisingly, plenty of smart people have suggestions. Stephen Mazzi, a professor at Bard College and this week's contributor to the New York Times series on philosophical issues, suggests that the movement would do well to consider a theory of justice from John Rawls, the, as Mazzi calls him, American political philosopher who was one of the 20th century's most influential theorists of equality. Rawls' theory allows for inequality of income and sits firmly within the capitalist system, but has an eye for the equality of opportunity within that system. As Mazzi, the professor, writes, quote, Occupy Wall Street is leveraged too heavily on the rhetoric of rage rather than reciprocity. Rawls would argue that Occupy is fully justified in its criticism of the political and economic structures that propagate massive concentrations of wealth, but Rawls would lament the tendency of the 99% to misdirect their energies into hatred of individuals in the 
He would have them save their hostility for the policies and institutions that have permitted only the wealthiest to enjoy significant gains from the past two decades of economic growth, end quote. I appreciate Mazzi's steering of anger from the individual to the institutional, even while I acknowledge that sometimes it's the individual anger that can help bring media attention to an important issue. But I like even more thoughts from George Lakoff, the linguist and political theorist, in what he called a framing memo for Occupy Wall Street. Not a bad person to have offering free advice, George Lakoff. Lakoff argues that the movement at its essence is about morality. I think it is a good thing that the occupation movement is not making specific policy demands, he writes. If it did, the movement would become about those demands. It seems to me that the Occupy Wall Street movement is moral in nature, that occupiers want the country to change its moral focus. It is easy, Lakoff goes on, to find useful policies. Hundreds have been suggested. It is harder to find a moral focus and stick to it. Lakoff goes on to suggest that the moral focus must be a positive one. I quote, this movement could be destroyed by negativity, by calls for revenge, by chaos, or by having nothing positive to say. Be positive about all things and state the moral basis of all suggestions. Positive and moral in calling for debt relief. Positive and moral in upholding laws as they apply to finances. Positive and moral in calling for fairness in acquiring needed revenue. Positive and moral in calling for clean elections. To be effective, your movement must be seen by all of the 99% as positive and moral. End quote. Now, Lakoff's words could be seen as those of a spin doctor trying to sanitize a movement whose very power is in its messiness, in that primal scream quality. What resonates with me, though, is his idea of a positive moral message, a message that calls for a new morality to guide our work on elections, on financial markets, on CEO pay. When we are able to speak from a clear sense of our morality rather than in reaction to someone else's, we make the possibility of shared understanding more likely. Or put another way, primal screams are just fine, except it's hard to have a conversation when you can't hear over the yelling. The Occupy movement, and particularly the individual encampments, have had to engage in a great deal of conversation among diverse people just to figure out how to place their tents and get their meals. My hope is that those skills can be good practice for the conversation that will really matter, the conversation with the rest of the country about how we can begin shifting America's moral focus. And my hope, too, is that religious communities like ours can help with that conversation, indeed can be a vital part of it. There are already ways that congregations are supporting the Occupy movements, starting with making casseroles. In some of the Occupy encampments, there are chaplains at work providing spiritual support and also indicating the religious values at work in the movement. Because I do think those values are religious in the broadest and best sense of that word. First of all, anytime we're talking about something moral, we're talking about our deepest values, which we frequently live out and practice in religious community. One of the chaplains at Occupy Wall Street said that the movement felt like church, a bunch of people who thought differently from each other, trying to make decisions together and live with each other. It does sound familiar, doesn't it? 
and how much more so for us with our understanding of what it means to be religious. Every Sunday I look up as I walk into this room and see the words written above me, where people meet to seek the highest is holy ground. Well, if the Occupy folks aren't trying to seek the highest, then I don't know what they're doing, which means for me, at least, Freedom Plaza, McPherson Square, Zuccotti Park, they have become holy ground. So what do we do about it? How do we help the conversation? Well, there's a good argument for the idea that the protest movement exists to protest, and we need other, more organized movements to organize. Indeed, that kind of work is what community organizing groups have been doing for years, and I think they have a particular moment here to take their message broader. Religious leaders working with New York City's interfaith organizing group have called for national engagement in their work, sustained campaigns with actionable requests and accountability. Our version of that here in DC is the Washington Interfaith Network, or WIN, which this congregation joined just last May. Wynn is working on a citywide campaign that will bring jobs and justice to the neighborhoods that are suffering the most, like Wards 7 and 8, where there is 40% unemployment. And it will try to do so by drawing on the power and success of large downtown businesses and corporations which are posting record profits. Sounds to me like a way to work for the 99%. On a more personal level, I think we can stand with the 99%, stand for them. Sign one of the petitions going around. I've posted the one that I signed to the West Facebook page. Educate yourself on what people are so angry about so you can rattle it off when you're around the water cooler. Camp out for a night and educate yourself even more. Wear a button saying what you're hoping for. Let that button be the beginning of a conversation. Don't think, though, that I believe a good chat will sort the whole country out. I still like my Yoda shirt, and sometimes I really do wish I had a lightsaber to brandish while shouting out all the things I want to see fixed. Equality, I would cry. A living wage, free, high-quality childcare, free contraception, too. An actually integrated school system, fair sentencing for drug offenses while I'm at it. Justice. I do know which side I'm on. I just wish there were more times when we didn't have to see it as a my side or yours kind of thing. And so I try to be careful with my language. I don't say fight or battle unless I really mean it. I remember that Wall Street bankers aren't actually Sith Lords. I went to college during a time when investment banking was one of the regular job opportunities after we graduated. Not only are Wall Street bankers not Sith Lords, they're my former roommates. I want to be able to talk with them, to organize with them, to let them know what I believe is fair and to invite them into a conversation. But I might just wear this t-shirt while I'm doing it <laughs> because there's nothing wrong with reminding them about the power of the force. <laughs>